Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with my extremely talented and amazing co-host. Wow, Becca Skutak. Not sure if I was who should have checked in with that intro. Oh, I thought it was somebody else. I forgot. <laughs> it was shit. <laughs> oh, no, I'm talking about you. But we are here to talk about the stories behind the startups. That's what we do every week on this show. And to do that, we talk to the founders of the startups who are the experts in their stories. And then we, you know, we help them tell the truth. <laughs> I think they, we have honest founders on here. We have good people. But today we have a very good person. We're talking to Alex Rappaport, who is the CEO and co-founder of Zwitterco which makes it practical for industries to recycle water and enhance product recovery with breakthrough advancements in filtration. That's some hardcore science going on there, but I'm not the one to explain it to you. Alex will do that much, much better. So let's get to the show. Hi, Alex. How's it going? Doing great. Thank you guys for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, Alex, do you want to tell us and our listeners a little bit about what Zwitterco is? Sure, happy to. So, Zwitterco makes first-of-its-kind filtration tools. We help industry and agriculture treat and reuse their wastewater, helping to take the industries that supply our food, our fuel, our manufactured goods, and help them reduce their water footprint, both having their own independent supply and access of water, and a lot of times helping create new valuable products out of waste streams to help justify the investment in advanced treatment infrastructure. Cool. All right. Well, it sounds like there's a lot in there. <laughs> it's, is how did you even get into this business to begin with? Like, what? It's not. It doesn't seem like the thing. You know, when you're a kid, that you're like, I'm going to be in water waste reduction management when I grow up. So, what? What was your path to this? Well, I'm sad to say that as a kid, uh, I was actually involved <laughs> with uh, at least a little a little closer to water. So if I if I really rewind the clocks, I was a river raft guide starting at about age 13. I was teaching whitewater stand up paddleboarding, whitewater rafting, kayaking, all sorts of fun adventure sports out on the Potomac River uh, near DC. Nice. And <laughs> whether this was a conscious realization at the time, I actually got. Giardia and other sort of waterborne oh, contaminants okay. from being very on the river. Uh, all this. Oh, <laughs> very fun. But what really sort of crystallized for me was so many of my most sort of magical experiences growing up were being out in nature, being with uh, the communities of people that really cared about seeing better preservation of, of our world, of our resources. Um, and that was one of the first points of insight. What am I going to do with my life? Where am I going with this? Mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of keep that environmental spirit close to home and take what I believed was a path to working on really exciting, challenging problems through innovation engineering and sort of unite those two passions. So when I was in college, I ended up doing environmental engineering at Tufts. And then when I got into a master's program, it was focused on innovation, bringing new technologies to market. I stumbled upon this new class of filtration tools, these membranes, and that the second I realized, you know, the dirtiest waters, wastewaters in the world, you could suddenly help protect the resource, get to better sort of ways of managing water. And there's these massive economic and societal benefits all along the way. It was sort of a perfect harmony for how I then kicked off my career. So you talk about these membranes. Can you explain a bit more about 
what those are and kind of when, because, you know, I think we hear about them here and there now. We didn't hear about them a lot when I was younger. Maybe I'm dating myself, <laughs> but I don't, how recent are these in terms of like a technology that we have access to or that we've invented? And then how does Zwitterco specifically leverage them? Absolutely. So just to give everyone a, a simple mental structure to think about membranes, right? Think of your coffee filter, semi-permeable barrier, and it lets certain things through based on how large the molecules or the compounds are, and it retains everything else based on the pore size, right? Your coffee filter takes out all the coffee grounds, but it lets color and odor and water and other dissolved compounds through. So membranes as a tool for filtration have been around for, for quite some time. Mm. When we think about the large seawater desalination plants, those use membranes to take out the salts and other ionic species in water and help us get to drinking water quality. When we think about whey protein or lots of the protein derivatives you'll see in bioprocesses and pharmaceutical applications, a lot of times these are extracted with membranes. So you're using that, again, that porous barrier to extract and concentrate your proteins, and then they'll get spray dried and they'll get shipped out in tubs. And that's what you buy you know, off, out of the grocery stores is those whey protein isolates. Membranes, however, really since the dawn of when this became a mature tool for separations have had one Achilles heel, one place where they really struggle to be commercially viable. And that's where they, they clog up, right? Filters mm. have sort of a propensity to have their surfaces and their pore structures impeded by the more contaminant loading that gets applied to the surface. So if you have fats, oils, greases, these sort of sticky agglomerated material in your fluid stream, they love to adhere to the surface. And now you've got a membrane that's going to potentially struggle to continue being able to operate. Right. So a lot of times, if it's a surface water, municipal water, drinking water, or a fluid stream where you're not going to have a severe rate of clogging, membranes can be really successful. But if you start trying to put them in places where there's a lot of heavy manufacturing, industrial byproducts, lots of agricultural waste, suddenly you're going to watch membrane that was flowing at a certain rate at time zero, an hour or a day later is suddenly going to have all of that flow restricted. It's going to be all clogged up. Mm. Now you're talking about heavy cleaning cycles, downtime, replacement, and it's that frequency of trying to bring that membrane back online that typically costs you a lot from an operating expense basis, and that makes these tools more and more challenging to put into hard-to-treat wastewaters. Right. And so you've come up with an alternative to that that is practical and that can scale? Uh, that's right. So yeah, enters Wittercup. Um, the earliest work on the novel chemistry platform that, that our technology is based off of started back in 2013. I mean, this was invented at one of the research groups at Tufts University, where, where I was an undergrad and master's. And the chemical engineering group that had invented this new class of filtration tools was working on materials that basically don't stick, right? They're almost so, in this case, so water-loving, so hydrophilic, that when you're filtering all sorts of really nasty fluids, the membrane itself so preferentially grabs onto water molecules mm -hmm. and holds onto them that it's almost impossible for an oil compound or a fat molecule to sort of break past that water barrier mm -hmm. in order to contact and stick to the membrane itself. So because this membrane is... It's just built from sort of an entirely different chemistry. You can put it in fluid environments where you can filter historically unfilterable streams. You can often extract or concentrate the organic material that's in those streams so that you can make something that's valuable. And you can just rinse the membranes clean with a very simple water or, or very mild chemical rinse, and you'll get that membrane back to its starting 
permeability or starting sort of capacity for filtration in a very, very short, simple cleaning cycle. Cycle after cycle, day after day, week after week. We've had products that have been installed commercially now for 16 months and they're still running brand new. Wow. Whereas a, a standard product would have been incapacitated far earlier than that. And something I'm curious about, because this is a side of startup building that we don't often get to hear about, the sort of nature of taking scientific back research and going off that research to create this type of commercial product. And I'm curious kind of if you want to talk about what that journey was like mm-hmm. and when you got introduced to the research and like, how do you take it from there into launching a company? Sure. I'm going to absolutely humiliate myself on a couple of these early stories because I can promise you I did not have all of the best ideas getting out of the <laughs> gate here. So when I first got started, there was a series of laboratory data sets that said we put municipal wastewater, textile wastewater, random oily wastewater in front of membranes. Should have killed them. They worked beautifully. Now what? And that was really the extent that the academic group had published. Mm -hmm. That was the extent of sort of laboratory trials that had been completed. And here I walk in. Oh my God, all of water and wastewater is about to be solved. We have membranes now that can be put, you know, everywhere. But I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have a sense of how to manufacture, how to scale the technology. And I will admit, I didn't really even know the chemistry that well. You know, when we were first getting started, I'd seen some published articles and said, you know, how can we help think about where this could displace antiquated technologies or where this could enable new treatment solutions? So that first year was all about business model building. Mm -hmm. How can I communicate with enough stakeholders in different industries, either the engineering companies that design and install treatment infrastructure or the end users, the bioprocessor, the poultry plant, the dairy plant that has all of these wastewater challenges and doesn't necessarily know what they could do to get to a more sustainable way of managing the water. So it was all about rapid customer discovery first. The first place that I started to clue in or or receive what I'd call industry pull saying, as soon as I talked about what the technology could do, I started to hear people say, you got to go make this. You have to go build this and make these, these technologies available. I had flown out to the Produce Water Society conference in Texas, where they looked at a lot of the waste that comes out of the oil and gas industry. Lots of chemicals, petroleum hydrocarbons in that wastewater, and massive volumes of water, very expensive to deal with. And I started speaking with a lot of the oil field operators, and they were talking about how they use a very complicated series of different tools that sort of only half do the job, or some very expensive ceramic or or sort of stainless steel alternatives, because less expensive materials just couldn't hold up in those environments. And I was sort of showing them what the data was. And I kept hearing from C-level executives at at major companies, you got to make this. If you can make Mm -hmm. this, I I would replace every quote unquote ceramic membrane that I have in my fleet with your technology. So the first sort of foray into, into the venture building was, do you have enough data from voice of customer exercises that you can pinpoint what the use cases would look like, what the competitive differentiation looks like. And can you build a narrative that continues to get refined the more conversations you have, but that speaks to why this is so unique and how that could be valuable for creating these these new opportunities. The second piece of this, and this is where I think I perhaps had some silly ideas, we didn't know how to make it, right? This was all lab-scale technology. Someone hand-casted membrane on on a lab bench. And to get to industrial manufacturing, you got to be working on real pieces of equipment, making miles of membrane at a time. You have to have robust supply chain and quality practices. And I distinctly remember the day that I walked into the professor's office and I talked about how I was going to create a small manufacturing assembly for how we could make membrane. And I was going to make it through like a Lego robotics kit or something, right? Some small like 
you know, motorized system where you could apply a very simple coding process. And it was about that time that the uh, the professor looked to me and said, okay, you need some help. <laughs> we, got, we got to find you a technical co-founder because that's that's not how this is going to work. Um, and I was, I was really blessed and very fortunate that around that same time, my current chief technology officer was also finishing up a master's at Tufts. And he had 10 years in industry and knew a ton about what was involved in creating chemistries and manufacturing practices that could actually scale and you could Mm -hmm. bring to the kinds of facilities that you'd need to do large volume production with and really understand their constraints from a solvent compatibility standpoint or how it's going to retrofit to their equipment. So from early voice of customer to having some of the expertise on my team that could help work through some of those early scale-up challenges. And then eventually we got our own lab space. We started to get early funding. I'm happy to talk about raising angel funding. That was a blast. Mm. And with that first set of early funding, we were able to reproduce the membrane. We were able to produce test assemblies that allowed us to source customer wastewater and not just have initial conversations about what if, but now be able to demonstrate with our own performance data, here's what it's doing for you. Here's what the clean water looks like next to what you gave us. Here's how much savings could be on the table if you stop paying those surcharges or stop having to use so much chemistry. And that all sort of began to build the momentum behind the company. We had dozens, if not hundreds of customer trials that we were completing. We were able to produce membrane repeatedly, showing that we'd have the right kind of quality practices in place. And the more real it got, the more sort of attention and customer demand there was for the products to to exist. And eventually it got time to start going into to real prototyping and, and production. Nice. When you were talking about the, when you were doing the, the manufacturing sort of ideation, I guess is what maybe we would call it. Like, were, sure. you, were, were you, did you know whether, whether the process was similar at all to any already scaled ones? Or was that all what came from partnering up with the co-founder. And then once you found that, were you able to say like, oh, it's actually a slight alteration from this existing process that already exists? Or, you know, what was that learning process like for you? Yeah, so Chris Drover, my my chief technology officer, and I got connected very early on, even before the company got founded. So happy to say that pretty quickly, there was a more industrially representative discussion that we were having about how we're going to make this. But one of the brilliant insights that we were able to pursue that there's a lot of, new, exciting technologies that get produced in in research and laboratory settings, right? But yeah. that design for manufacturing, the design for how is this going to be made at scale? How can it drop into existing infrastructure? How can we not have to reinvent every wheel about what the final product looks like, but how can we take lessons from templates off of what's already out there? Chris had some wonderful insights about how we could be most efficient with our limited capital and our sort of fastest route to, to an MVP. And what we were able to do, sort of the dilemma that, that we were facing The history of membrane is made on pretty sophisticated capital equipment, right? We're talking Mm -hmm. multiple millions required to even get the baseline facilities and capability up to do large volume production. And you face a choice when you're an early stage company. How quickly do you start partnering? How you start working with existing manufacturers, larger suppliers, and dealing with some of the potential ramifications of those relationships early on before you necessarily have product market fit or evidence of technological performance, versus how much do you want to do yourself? How much do you either want to invest in yourself or create the supply chain yourself? And the associated challenges and and sort of sweat equity that goes into organizing a a manufacturing process. What we were able to identify was with only a couple tweaks to what the original sort of patented chemistry was, we were able to design a process that rather than have to go partner with an existing membrane company, we could piece together a supply chain of contract manufacturers, Uh some folks who work on the polymer, some people who work on the coating, and that we were 
able to creatively conform what the product was to, we didn't have to invest in all that capital ourselves, but we also didn't have to go start talking with larger right. companies that we weren't necessarily prepared to get into a business relationship with. There was sort of a middle avenue where we could find the right close enough capabilities from different contract parties that helped us get to a first MVP without having to have all that plant and equipment on, you know, on our balance sheet. Cool. I mean, yeah, that seems like a very difficult balance to strike, but also existentially relevant to the company, right? Because if you partner, if you go, you have to go hat in hand to whatever BASF or something. I don't even know how to pronounce that because I've never said it out loud, but <laughs> <laughs> like one of the very large mm-hmm. uh, chemical manufacturers that I assume they would just be like, we're going to swallow you in like five years if this works out. Or if not, we're going to kind of leave you on the side of the road and move along, right? Everyone in the industry has an intent to see new technologies come to life and to see better tools you know, be provided to the industry and, and help solve customer problems. You're just dealing with a difference of incentive structures, right? For us, yeah. absolutely existential that we get product made. It's not necessarily the same for X billion dollar large company that we just don't have the evidence yet that they should be mobilizing their resources or committing their time to this very new untested thing. So it's it's not at all that we didn't want to, and today are are definitely engaging in many more of those kinds sure. of conversations with larger partners. But that's why I say their names and you don't say their names. <laughs> <laughs> so it was helpful, and I think this is maybe a lesson to any company that's trying to get off the ground: is just where there are aspects of your own destiny that you have to own. You want to make sure that you're not working with someone who doesn't have the same reason to pour all of that effort into helping you get to that next milestone, the the really pivotal milestones, you, you sort of can't shop out to, to someone yeah. else. So you have to figure out your own way to control your destiny there. Mm-hmm. And something I'm curious about about this space is like, I've obviously heard about wastewater. I mm-hmm. have the absolute joy and pleasure of living near one of the most polluted creeks in the country, as well as the New York City sewage treatment plant. Mm-hmm. But... I'm curious, maybe that's worth talking about. How big of an issue is wastewater and how big is this market exactly that you guys are looking to tackle? So, and these are sort of rough estimates here. Something like one-sixth of all of the freshwater intake that we take globally ends up as industrial or agricultural wastewater. That's water that goes down the drain. That's water that gets land applied or delivered into oceans or rivers. That's water that is you know, spread around for for various different avenues of disposal, but it's a gargantuan volume of water. Um, we're talking hundreds of billions of gallons a day. So the water that we focus on is water that is coming out of food production facilities that is related to management of organic wastes. We have plants running in dairy wastewater, in bioprocessing, in manure and food waste digestate, uh, working in landfill leachate, meat and poultry. So these can be at any one singular point source, hundreds, if not millions of gallons a day of wastewater. And this is one of the chief, I'm a poultry plant and these I produce a protein product. But in fact, you might be uh, logistically managing five to 10 times the volume of water that you're producing in terms of a protein product. Same thing in the oil and gas industry. Sometimes it can be five to one, 10 to one, even 90 to one, the amount of water that you're managing as opposed to the the petroleum product. So it's a hidden, almost out of sight, out of mind feature of how you manage these industrial processes until it isn't, until water scarcity means you might not have the water that you thought you did to continue production or to expand production as challenges around climate change continue to challenge the resources that are available, or that 
you built a facility in what was previously not a water-stressed region, and you had a certain cost per kilogallon of water coming in and cost to use the sewer, and that rate has been increasing like 8% year over year for the last two decades. And now your economics of running that facility are much more connected to your utility costs, both water and energy. Right. So it's a big problem for when you think about how many types of industries or how many geographies this is touching as an acute problem. But if you sort of zoom in now to localized regions, there was massive food inflation and water shortages around the California Central Valley, where a ton of the agriculture in the U.S. comes from. We're seeing cutbacks now that are being either mandated or they're still in some form of discussion around the states surrounding the Colorado River Basin, since we've seen such historic lows in the available water for industry and agriculture there. If you've been following a lot of the boom in the biomanufacturing space or synthetic biology used in fermentation reactions, they're projecting that we need something like 10 times the amount of capacity for both fluid for producing these biomanufactured products, as well as how you manage the resulting wastewater. And so that's an industry that has garnered a huge amount of venture capital attention, you know, innovation sort of funneling through, but there's a water constraint to how much sustainable outcomes we can see from the biomanufacturing world. It's sort of how well we can, we can manage the water all along. So it affects most of what we, we sort of interact with, but there have been, I think, a history of water not being that expensive or not being so sort of present of a challenge that it's rarely the first sort of sustainable resource that comes up in the in the conversation. But even that's changing dramatically as we see more and more headline attention on water stress. We see more goals coming out of you know Davos and, and other sort of massive intergovernmental discussions about where we need to be investing in sustainability. Water has rapidly increased in, in sort of public attention, and I think for good reason. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially like I'm in Toronto, right? And so we're right in the sweet spot, the Great Lakes zone. And I think a lot of people in industries here take for granted, like there's lots of it. Don't worry about it. There's so much. We can't, we can't, we don't know. What are we, what are we going to do with all this water? <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, uh, it obviously is changing, changing very quickly. But I, is it also, you mentioned kind of just like real on the ground, just hard facts about reservoirs kind of drying up or whatever, like resources going scarce. But what about regulators? Are they thinking ahead to this? Are your customers seeing or anticipating that regulators are going to tax us more harshly or create some kind of like business incentive on the side or regulatory business incentive that would make them want to like get in shape ahead of time, I guess? Yeah. So we see regulation showing up on sort of two angles. One is in the idea of water rights or water access. And that sort of comes back to how we are expecting to see legislation come out around management of the Colorado River Basin as an example there. And this is all about uptake, how much can you get access to? And then on a disposal level, right, anyone's industrial waste is permitted by what the municipal, local municipal treatment plant can take. And those permits themselves can come under some scrutiny. So there's a just, can you get the water and can you get rid of the water sort of question number one. The second place that we see regulation show up is more on an industry level, and it's specific to the types of contaminants that you might see in that waste. So as an example, there has been a a massive shift in the management of food waste, right, away from landfills because of all of the trouble with greenhouse gas emissions when organic waste goes to landfills and trying to move it towards anaerobic digestion or compost or something where you can recover that biogas in a way that is valuable. And the resulting liquid waste that comes out of anaerobic digestion is something that is regulated. Can it be land applied? 
you know, what is the nutrient loading or the soil ramifications of discharge of that waste? And we're seeing a lot of limitations on how much digestion capacity we can put up in the U.S. based on the challenges around available land for nutrient loading. Similar on the manure side, we have so much concentration of animal feeding operations, but the local land around those concentrated feedlots hasn't been expanding at the rate that more animals have been coming on. So now we've had soils that throughout certain periods of the year are getting overloaded with nitrogen and phosphorus and other sort of manure-based byproducts. So you have the same issue there. The regulation is less about, can you recover the water and more, can you take all the stuff out of the water that you've been dumping on the ground as a mm. standard way of, of disposal? The meat and poultry industry right now is sort of engaged with the EPA in discussions about improving the, the discharge of the fat and oil that is in poultry wastewater. That has been standards that have been set in the 70s and in the 90s have not necessarily been updated. And that can have a lot of pressure on local municipal treatment infrastructure. So it's these sort of like localized cases by industry where mm-hmm. the standards for treatment are increasing. And with that comes sort of the dual incentive of my water cost is going up. My water availability is going down. The regulatory pressure on removing contaminants from my water is increasing, and the standards of technology that can be applied are higher. Mm -hmm. So it's all inching towards the same outcome. Reuse the water on site, right? Perform the advanced treatment that gets you different varying qualities of water, some that might be for potable reuse, some for non-potable reuse, some just for washing down your floors and and cleaning your trucks and other equipment. But all of these sort of regulatory pressures are, are angling towards better environmental stewardship of waste that is discharged and better, more conservation-focused practices of water reuse where there may be increasing challenges with scarcity. And all of that starts with, do you have the technology to do it? Mm -hmm. Is there the emotional interest and effort on the behalf of the company, either the corporate level and at the operations level, to try to think about the investments that are needed to do water reuse? And are the economics there, right? Is this something that everyone is strained for their capital budgets or for what they can prioritize? And can the tools, can the solution be applied in a way that helps make an economic justification as strongly as it makes a sustainability one? And this is where I would say I have been the most proud and impressed along this journey is I am seeing such enthusiasm and such heart and Mm. commitment to wanting to make the investments. They don't necessarily always know what the best route is or know how to sort of economically quantify, I'm going to put in filtration. How is that going to work for me? But the interest in having that discussion has been ubiquitous in, in the customers and partners that we talk with. I was told when I got started here, you know, never lead with your ESG narrative. Right. People want to talk in hard dollars. That's, you know, and at the end of the day, it must come down to an economically rational argument. But I see so many people who want to be on the right side of history, that want to pioneer sustainability in their space, think, I want to be the first one to show 90%, 100% water recycling my facility because the whole industry is going to move behind me if we can be the ones to pick up that standard. It's sort of what gets people excited to meet with us and mm-hmm. that makes people most excited to, to sign the deals and, and work with us is this narrative of we've been wanting to reuse our water for a long time. We're really excited to finally have a tool that can help us do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to ask, since you mentioned it, what does that process look like? If, say, I had a dairy farm and I was looking to use something like this product, like what is the onboarding like? What would it be like for a company to start or a production plant, et cetera, to start using this technology? Yep. So there's sort of two answers to that question based on whether someone already has any amount of filtration infrastructure that we might be able to directly retrofit. So in a dairy plant or a meat and poultry facility or a a new bioprocess facility that's being built, 
you're looking at installing new equipment. So oftentimes the initial qualification of the opportunity is an assessment that we help perform on how the technology performs for that given fluid stream. So we'll get five gallons of your wastewater, we'll run it through a quick screening study, we'll either go through bench evaluation, or we'll bring some equipment and a team to your site and let it run for a couple of weeks to a couple of months at a time. So you can really see and visualize that performance day in, day out. It's cleaning, the membrane's recovering. You can see the crystal clear jar of water that's being produced from this Alex, how often do you have to drink the water to really I just it? Uh, dump lot? it out quickly and then pour clean water in <laughs> and then I drink it. And it's a really <laughs> impressive sleight of hand trick, actually. Um, it, see, the scary part is a lot of times it looks like you can drink it, but you definitely shouldn't. <laughs> you should. Um, however, however, um, we do help get you to potable quality if that is the desired treatment goal. So rarely in water does one tool do everything. Like dirty water comes in black box. Yeah. Perfectly clean water comes out. That's science fiction. Not not how the world works. Yeah. Right. But to piece together the right tools that each do the most efficient job they can, oftentimes we are involved in treatment processes where you'll ultimately get to reverse osmosis quality or fully polished water that is being used as a, you know, inside the plant process um stream, which is exciting. I mean, that's yeah, that's one of the big benefits is getting it that clean and doing so in a way that's cost effective. But I interrupted so, you. So you're on site <laughs> and you're you're Perhaps running on site or perhaps bench testing and demonstrating to clients, right? Demonstrating to clients, want, want them to be able to see it and have their team understand how they would operate it. And then from there, it's sort of a, a pretty standard equipment design, procurement, fabrication, installation, commissioning process, right? Anytime you're imagining installing lots of big tanks or an evaporator or some significantly sized piece of industrial equipment, you are whether it's a, a full RFP process or whether we just work together on you've got this much floor plan and you need something that's going to process this much volume of water, then we're going to assign these are the unit operations, the different treatment technologies, Twitter Co. maybe being one of the, the cohort that are integrated. And then we put together a capital estimate. And, and from there, it's how quickly can we get that equipment designed and fabricated and installed. Switterco focuses on the membrane piece of it, and mm -hmm. we do a lot of help in the applications engineering, making sure that it fits for the intended use case. We work with a number of systems integrators, engineering companies that do a lot of that design package and project delivery. So oftentimes, if new equipment is required, we'll start out the conversation by saying, hey, here's a group that we've worked with for a couple of years. They do a terrific job with engineering. You know, Switterco is going to do a lot of the membrane testing. And as soon as we're talking about putting together an estimate, we have a partner who's you know, bread and butter business is organizing all the details and logistics around your tanks are going to go here and your valves are going to be here. And this is how we think about the way that an operator is going to interact with the HMI. These questions are all part of the package. You know, the innovation at the heart of the system is only valuable if it's something that's easy to use and yeah. that makes sense and it's easy to operate. So we work closely with partners on that part. Cool. So Alex, you are clearly a very self-possessed, very confident person and you can Definitely rattle this stuff off, like in a way that is very, very convincing to me. But was this always <laughs> the case, or was it? Because you talked about seed. I want to hear more about your sure. your early funding and what that was like. Because it sounds like you know you had this experience, this learning experience when you were looking at commercialization. Did you have a similar one when you got to the funding process, or was that easier for you, or what was that like? 
Oh, it's a great question. I'm glad that you anchored on that as the, is this how you got good at talking about Zodorco? Because it's absolutely, that's you're, <laughs> you're, you're spot on. So I was so, so very fortunate to have the number of angel investors who really believed early on what we were trying to do here. Um, because every one of those conversations was an opportunity for me to learn how to tell the story. Mm. What What is it that we're trying to do? And, and not just tell it from the perspective of a sales person saying, hey, help invest, we need your money, buy shares. That was really never my intent. Um, and I think it allowed me to build the relationships and the network that I did. I had no idea what I was doing coming out of college, right? I didn't have decades of experience doing this. So I looked at every one of those early angel investment discussions as a potential way to learn, gain feedback, have my story critiqued by seasoned entrepreneurs who had done this time in and time out and who could apply rapid judgment to, to our story. And I could tweak and tune and improve my understanding of unit economics, of business model, of how we could go to market and what the different constraints and limitations would be. So we raised a couple million dollars from about 53 angel investors. Mm -hmm. And of those 53, you could imagine there were probably over 200 conversations over the course of a year or two. Each one of those conversations built for me another person that is still involved in the company today. Hmm. Um, you hear a lot of stories a lot of times about perhaps entrepreneurs and investors having a not quite fully aligned relationship sure. where there can be some tension there. But never, I've never had wow. an experience with any of my early investors that is anything but incredibly gracious and fortunate for how supportive and how much effort they invested in me and my personal development. Right. So each one of those conversations was a chance to have the story torn apart, right? You entrepreneurship is like an apprenticeship model. You sort of have to have people who know what they're doing, tell you why your ideas are stupid and here's yep. how you can make them better. And you just do that process over and over and over again. And I, I loved every minute of it. And I got much, much better at talking about what matters in the business and venture building, how we can communicate the story in a way that really speaks to the things that get people excited. And that, you know, it, it is sort of salesmanship, but to some extent, those early journeys through fundraising helped me get to the point where I could bring on team members, I could bring on customers, I could bring on partners, I could bring on larger and larger investors with the different sources of capital. I would never recommend any early stage entrepreneur avoid the angel circuit, avoid those early conversations mm -hmm. because it makes you so much better. You have to get that feedback. You have to put your story out there and have it critiqued. I'm curious because based on sort of the company timeline and knowing your age, because you recently were named to Forbes under 30, did you get any pushback about that? Like being such a young head of like a company that's so technical, like backed on all this research coming out to fundraise when you were pretty young in your career? Never. Hmm. Not once. Interesting. I point again to unbelievable fortunate people in my network that, that I met early on. You know, people acted professionally. People asked me questions. People said no. People were very, you know, serious with their intent to contemplate the future vision that we could help create and, and whether this was the right company and whether I was the right founder to back. I don't think I get, I can't point to a single conversation where someone was like, you're in your twenties. I can't imagine investing in someone in their twenties. They attacked the ideas. They attacked mm -hmm. the strategies, which is exactly what I could have asked for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that that is a challenge that a lot of folks face. And I, again, I sort of encourage find people who are excited by the story and excited by what you're trying to do and don't waste your time with people who just, you know, Look at, look at your age or look at your experience and aren't willing to have a real conversation with you. I feel like it helps that, I mean, if again, if you just sounded anything like you sound now, like I would be like, yeah, I believe you. Because I, I, <laughs> when I was that age, people were like, you're an idiot. What's the matter with you? You should not be trying to convince anyone of anything. Because I thought, well, I mean, I had big sideburns and I wore bad newsboy caps. So there was a lot going on that was wrong. But what? 
I was not convincing anybody about any of this shit. <laughs> I was, uh, I actually did uh, quite a bit of amateur boxing when I was uh, oh, yeah. just, okay. just graduating. So there were a couple investor meetings I sat down with, with black eyes. So maybe it was that, right? Maybe that's why <laughs> no one asked me anything, but no, I'm uh, sure that was not the case. <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to ask about like how that translated then into later funding. Like you guys just announced your Series A last year, right? How were those rounds for you? Were they kind of a cakewalk given your early experience? And then would you credit that again? Or were they very different? <laughs> very different. Yeah, yeah, very different. So in early stage investment discussion, whilst you want to go through litany of business questions. How are you going to build this thing? How much money do you need? What's your use of funds? What's your team construction? What's your next milestone that builds traction? There's no real evidence that mm. someone can do a ton of diligence on, right? You are a person whose conviction and seriousness, you just have a gut instinct on, and you have maybe some evidence of customer testimonials or, or technology performance, but an angel investor has a lot of instinct that they have to trust because there's just not enough material. There's no historical financials. There's no yeah. sales or revenue to be to be considered at that point. As the significance of the rounds grew and as the sophistication of investment firms that we began sort of working with expanded, there was a lot more of the, I would call perhaps perfunctory diligence required, putting mm -hmm. together the data rooms, getting together all of your materials that would get poured over by analysts. But at the end of the day, it was still a conversation between people about vision and values and what was possible. You just had perhaps more material that had to be produced as a barrier to entry mm -hmm. to have the conversations about, are we as people going to enjoy working together? One of the things that I think got more and more challenging as we went to larger and larger rounds was water is not a space that has had a long investment track record. There hasn't been that many companies that have been invested, not a lot of exits, not a lot of sort of, here's my you know, logo salad of companies that we're trying to be like. So while there were many investment firms that were really interested in sustainability and, and clean tech, few had the natural interest and or skill sets on their team or expertise on their team to evaluate what does a water company look like? It's just, it's a hard investment to make if you've never seen it before. Yeah. So one of the places that we were really excited to partner with our, our lead investor, DCVC, mm -hmm. that led our Series A. So we, we raised a $33 million Series A. The company's raised $46 million to date across a couple investment rounds and grant funding. And so this big sort of series A came in because we met a group of deep tech investors who were really sophisticated, not just in their sort of intuitive knowledge about what it takes to build hardware and breakthrough technologies that have much longer time horizons and potentially need more capital invested. They also had a wonderful network of partners that they'd bring in to evaluate the deal. And they had already sort of built for themselves this, I would say, forward-thinking vision about where water was going to go and how important this was going to be to the global conversation, to future investment opportunities. And so they had this sort of mind share that we were able to quickly realize we're trying to get to the same outcome. We're both trying to create mm -hmm. a future of water abundance. We're both trying to bring new technologies into this space that has been historically underinvested in. And so finding that partnership where I can remember the first day that um, the Jason Ponton, our chairman, walked into one of our offices, he said, you know, the greatest inventions, the greatest innovations have been made when you co-locate your R&D and your, your low volume manufacturing facilities so that you can have a direct conduit of information and learning that comes from the earliest point of technology fabrication through the prototyping stage. And you have to have all those resources, all that knowledge together under one roof. Mm -hmm. I never heard a VC say that before. Mm -hmm. It was like, you want me to invest 
in equipment and capabilities and the infrastructure needed to not just scale product one, but to create an engine of new product development and innovation that we can continue growing from and can continue creating value over time. And there was like that mentality was perhaps so refreshing that we were quickly able to realize this is someone who knew what kind of path we were on and was excited about where it could go and was going to be a partner all along the way. So a bit more needle in a haystack to start finding those kinds of sure. relationships, but also meant that much more mission alignment when you get to to the deal stage. Yeah, for sure. We are unfortunately almost out of time here, Alex, but I have to ask before we let you go, why the name Zwitter Co.? There is a running trivia question in my company about whether the Co. stands for company or whether it stands for the correct answer, which is Co-Polymer. Uh-huh. So we're technically, we are technically Zwitter Co. Incorporated, Zwitter Co. Inc., because the Co., Zwitter Co., stands for Zwitter Ionic Copolymer, which is the new branch of material chemistry that our membranes are made from. They're made from Zwitter Ionic Copolymers. So wow. once upon a time, I wrote that on a whiteboard, and five years later, we haven't uh, come up with something better since. <laughs> but, but, but really, is it, it's, it's this brand new class of, of materials that when we think about why we're able to do what we can do, it's, it's really helpful, actually, because customers ask. What what does the name mean? Where where does what is Twitter? What, right. is, what is this? And it immediately opens the door to. I'd love to tell you about this exciting chemistry. You know, mm-hmm. here's why these membranes are going to do something different for you. And when people are then, you know, you go search around, what is this Twitter ionic membrane? Twitter Co is the first company that, sure. that comes up. So it's it is sort of a helpful homage to, to the early science that made all this possible. Very cool. All right, and now your all of your team members should listen to this podcast because they'll have the uh, the trivia That's right. answer. <laughs> That's right. Uh, thanks, Alex. It's been great talking to you, and it's been fantastic learning about this. I mean, yeah, you are easily, I think, top five, maybe the number one most informed founder when it comes to everything <laughs> possible about their business that we've ever had on the show. But yeah, I learned a lot, and and I want to thank again, thank you again for coming on. Excellent. Daryl, Becca, this was great. Thanks, guys, for all the great questions. Looking forward to uh, speaking soon. All right, Becca, that was our conversation with Alex. So I definitely found uh, his brief mention of his boxing career pretty interesting, but not nearly as interesting as everything else he talked about, which was a lot. This was like a brain density expansion exercise for me. But what did you think about what he was talking about and specifically their market potential I thought was maybe pretty interesting? Yeah, I think this is probably the first time I've spoken to a founder who's sort of in that environmental, that ESG sort of flavored space that actually said pitching that part of the business helped them raise money. And I know he even yeah. joked about it, too. It's always like, oh, tell them the numbers. They only care about the returns. And hearing that actually leading with that environmental component worked is like, I mean, <laughs> The way I'm I'm saying this is like pissing myself off. Like, of course, people should want to invest sure, in this they stuff should. that's better for the climate. But like, we don't see or hear about that nearly as often. No. So it's really interesting to hear that that pitch actually worked this time around. Yeah, that was cool. I think it seemed like he was like describing a movement, right? Which like mm-hmm. in the boardrooms of corporate America, there's this secret movement of people who are like, all I want to do is try to make my company somewhat positive or responsible or contribute in a good way to the kind of challenges that lay before us, which is really reassuring. But it also is, you know, like you kind of alluded to, like, it shouldn't be surprising. And I think increasingly, like, it won't be because in general, people are kind of getting to that point where it's like, well, this is an existential threat. So everything else is nice. And I like having 
unlimited LaCroix in the break room or whatever. But if I got to give them up, then I got to give them up. I don't know what that's not directly tied to this at all. Although <laughs> I wonder You're producing what your own water. If you use this, you don't need LaCroix. Yeah. Like, just get a soda stream. If you ran out of LaCroix through a Zwitterco membrane, what do you think would happen? Have you covered that in any previous conversation with uh, Alex Becker? No, actually, we did touch on that the last time. No, I'm kidding. Can you imagine? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we we talked heavily about the U.S., but I know you've spoken to him previously about the international opportunities. Do you want to shed some light on kind of what Zwitter thinks about those? Yeah, and I think the international component here is particularly interesting because while we obviously need these types of solutions here, especially in some of the industries they're targeting first, like poultry, dairy, those sort of really heavy like waste-producing industries, it definitely seems like one of the biggest opportunities here is textiles, which if you're looking to mm. sort of get into that market, your main markets are China, India, and places overseas that this probably isn't going to be on the radar for quite some time. But maybe that almost works as an advantage because by the time those types of markets are looking for these solutions, maybe those kind of products and Zwitterco will be further along in the journey, you know, better solutions, better scale and sort of things like that. But it is always interesting because that generally does come up when we talk about these more climate friendly climate conscious companies is that the market that they're starting to target is definitely like the smaller fish as far as problems go. Yeah, I think it's a great point because yeah, industrialization is kind of like just, well, other countries are rather like right in the height of their industrialization period in terms of their overall development. So that would be where a lot of this would apply. But yeah, I got the impression and we didn't get into too much detail about this, but I got the impression that there is, you know, cost that you have to defray via other means involved in this versus using other solutions, right? Because it's not like you're saying, oh, we're just comparing this cost to cost with like another way of doing this. It's like, this is something that they weren't even doing before. Like there was not even really an attempt to recover or clean a lot of this wastewater just because there was no practical way of doing it in a costly right. manner. So this makes it more cost effective, but it's not like cost zero, right? Like mm -hmm. it is still cost additive probably. So that explains why other places wouldn't necessarily have it. But eventually you would hope like once they get to scale with some of these customers, that starts bringing costs down and it starts getting within reach. And then as that's happening, like the forces on the other side, the economic forces and the environmental forces are driving them kind of towards that too, right? Like you reach mm -hmm. a point where it's like, well, we have to do this because we have no more water or, you know, we have to do this because we need to recover all of these materials and then process them. And then put them back into the stack because we can't source them anymore from external partners or whatever. There's just too much demand. So it seems inevitable. He was very good at convincing me that all kinds of inevitable forces are converging to make it mm -hmm. like the biggest business in the world. But I just I get the impression he's always been able to do that. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think the other really interesting part of this story to me is what I asked toward the beginning is I don't know about you, but a lot of the times you would think of like university research translating into a product like my head is always just like biotech life sciences medical mm. devices like all those kind of like health flavored type of things so it, i always think that founder journey is really interesting like especially because it wasn't even say like his phd research project it was existing research done by someone at the college and being able to take that and make that into a business and i don't know what you thought about that but i always think that's such like an interesting way to kind of get into this like entrepreneurship field yeah, for sure. It's really cool because you see a lot of these lab projects and we cover them too a lot of the times out of the academy, out of different universities. But that 
jump is hard, very hard. Mm -hmm. Most of the projects we cover never make that jump to commercialization and to being a business. So there's immense value in being able to spot that and then being able to actually put the pieces together to get to where you're shipping, building and shipping a commercial product. Like it's hard to understate how difficult that actually is and how many times we see it just not happen. Right. So mm-hmm. I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. He, I think a cynic would look at it and go like, oh, like you're just kind of an opportunist, but it's like, yes, but I think the optimistic look is also, yes, you're an opportunist and you're making something happen and scale that wouldn't otherwise be able to do that. And he commented on like, oh, well, I went and found my co-founder who had the expertise and the knowledge to be able to do this. Like being able to identify what is lacking and then also go find the right thing or person to make that happen and fill that gap is itself an immensely valuable skill that a lot of people, I think, kind of undervalue. Definitely. No, that's such a good point, especially in fields like this, because who is the one who makes the discoveries, who kind of does more of the science part. Those people don't turn out to generally be like good CEOs or good like C-suite executives because that's not their skill set. Their skill set is the scientific research, the backing, all that kind of stuff. Having that awareness of like the gaps there is something I feel a lot of startups could benefit from having. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's lots of like good examples that just jump to mind of like when that doesn't work out so good. I think the even like some of the protein alternatives things Mm -hmm. have seen that like impossible foods perhaps. Right. Like I know he's still involved in the company, but it's like the scientists can carry it to a certain point and then they kind of got to get out of the way because that's not necessarily their skill set. But I think in this case, having the person who is maybe the most business minded, but also obviously has a very firm and detailed grasp on the science that's going on behind the scenes sets them up for early success. Right. You get to that point of commercialization with the right kind of like incentives and values in place to make it an actual sustainable business as opposed to still hanging on to like, well, what was the research origin and are we going to stay true to that and peer to that and whatever. Right. Anyways, very cool. Yeah. I can't wait to hear more about their development and to hear more about their technology going out into the world. The 16 months thing I thought was very interesting too for like some of their materials. It sounds like they're at that point where it's like we're manufacturing at scale and we don't even know how long these things are going to last in actual production and use environments. Right. Which is pretty cool. Like that's an exciting place to be, right? Where you're just like setting records all the time. So hopefully we hear more about that. Yeah. And maybe... Next time I'll ask him what his favorite type of bottled water is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I'm thinking about it too, because he probably is an expert on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really, I like that he also disabused me of the notion that like, oh, he just like puts dirty water in one end of his machine and then it comes out clean and then he drinks it. Since that's not how they work <laughs> or how right. anything works. Uh, <laughs> now we know. <laughs> yeah, now I know. Now I'm not going to drink anybody's water out of their machine. So uh, don't try that on me, listeners. Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Hold up. 